You're listening to Mike and Kristen. The podcast. I'm Mike, a musician, writer, and producer. And I'm Kristen, a painter, writer, and designer. Our show is all about following dreams, taking chances, and what life as an artist is really about. Together, we bring you weekly guest interviews and thought-provoking conversations. Let's go! Hello, everybody out there in podcast land. It is Mike and Kristen coming at you with a brand new episode, a really special one. We packed up all our gear and traveled to Hope for Wildlife Sanctuary out in Seaforth, Nova Scotia to chat with Hope herself. And we had an amazing conversation. Such a special day. I love that we got to incorporate a road trip into this episode, too. Yeah, we're out in a little community on the ocean in Nova Scotia, you know, the the Eastern Shore area. Just uh, such a cool place. It's it's an amazing operation. Well, we I think we talk about it more in the episode, but it's like 20 acres of property. I don't know how many outbuildings, got to be like 20, 25 probably, staff of there's hundreds of volunteers, there's interns, there's vets, there's there's so many points of consideration on the property as well. So it's not just the infrastructure for the animals, but there's been a lot of thought put into the host environment. So everything from the plants on the property, so they're attracting the right species to create the most beneficial ecosystem as possible. Uh, They have solar panels installed. Everything has great signage. Uh, There's interpretive boards that are very clear. It's just start to finish an amazing day that we had amazing experience you know, most people probably have heard of who she is but if you haven't she hope runs this uh animal sanctuary in a quaint little area on the coast here nova scotia and takes in animals of every sort imaginable and rehabilitates them and and releases them back into the wild as best as she can. As she she, can, yeah. she has nothing but love and care and patience for not only the animals, but her entire operation, her staff, everyone, her guests, everyone that has interacted with her. She was so generous with her time. And to me, this is the kind of person that's a real hero. The work that she's doing for somebody to step up and raise their hand and take responsibility for something they have not been asked to do at this level is magical. These are the people we really should be celebrating. I think it's so, so interesting that she looks at all life the same way. Like a lot of people. Equally, you mean? Yeah, yeah. equally, yeah. Um, people, I don't know, you, you see a mouse and you're like, oh, it's just a little damn rodent or whatever however you mm-hmm. might uh think about it but for some reason a moose is like more sacred but ultimately we're all just we're all including humans you know we're all just uh creatures of some sort that are running on this giant planet we talked about this on our drive home how much respect we had for her but how also unfair it would be to be any person her or any of her staff to make that decision in determining a life being more important one over the next. And so I think you would have to have that philosophy in running 
the rehabilitation center business that she is, but she's just so true to that statement and commitment. And it, it shows, I mean, the second you meet her, you feel her presence and that she's just meant to be doing this work. And I have to say, we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but what she has achieved over so many years and as a woman trailblazer in this business, I can't imagine would have been easy. She was a trailblazer in setting new policy for how she was even able to have permits to run this operation. So it wasn't like, oh, I have this idea. It's something I want to do set up in my backyard. Like she has her hands in every detail of making this function. And I I just found that so impressive. It's a giant operation now. And it, it, obviously started as something smaller and grew into this where there are there's housing for the interns and the volunteers so yeah it's a a massive project to take on and so much to consider and she's doing an amazing job and it it truly was an honor to talk to her we consider ourselves animal lovers like we hope most of our listeners would as well But something else we reflected upon having been there and leaving was just having that deeper appreciation for an animal that you may otherwise overlook. Or like you were saying earlier, you just see it as, oh, it's just a mouse. Yeah. Why? Why is that lesser than? And so, yeah, we were so cautious on our drive home. There was a family of ducks that crossed the road as we were leaving. And like, oh, my gosh. Like Before today, we would have sped up to run over them, right? Exactly. Kill those babies. We've learned. Oh, there were so many sweet babies there that we... Yeah, we were given the the royal treatment is how we felt. It's it's it was an unforgettable day and Hope is such a legend in Nova Scotia that I know so many of you listening will have either seen her TV show, perhaps visited her location at Seaforth, but um this was just an amazing day for us. So Yeah, let's just uh let's get to it. A chat with us and Hope at her wildlife sanctuary right after we got a tour of the place. So it's- Pretty pretty cool. We were pretty wide-eyed when we sat down. Still pretty wide-eyed. Yeah. <laughs> okay, friends, let's dig in. This is incredibly exciting. We just received the tour of a lifetime from Hope herself, and we feel like we're just incredibly privilege and lucky to be here and to get to chat with you and you are doing amazing things here hope and it's making such a big impact in nova scotia canada and beyond so first and foremost thank you for all the things that you do and uh yeah we're incredibly honored to be here so nice to meet you both thanks so much for coming You're the real celebrity in my mind of what celebrity status really should represent. And driving here today, it was a a new experience for us even coming to this part of the province out here in beautiful Seaforth. But seeing the facility is something since we were kids we've known about, but having this honor of not only getting this, what felt like a VIP tour, but from 
you yourself <laughs> were feeling pretty high class right now, I gotta say. Um, so you hope, I imagine, have been doing media of some sort for many, many years. I know that you have television, you've done endless interviews, and you have been gracious enough to grant Mike and I from Mike and Kristen's podcast uh, so much of your time today. Uh, and we know that you're exceptionally busy. So like Mike said, just first and foremost, our deepest gratitude. And we have lots of questions for you. But for anyone who has never had the privilege of being here, why don't we start with just a little bit of an overview of how Hope for Wildlife came to be, what sort of some of your key points might be, and then we'll dig into the real nitty gritty of stuff that we're most curious about. Exactly. And surprising how many people don't even know we exist. So it is a good opportunity. A lot of people don't know about wildlife rehabilitation And they aren't aware that if you come across an injured or orphaned wild animal, there is usually help out there. There's people like me all over the world that are happy to to even pick up that animal, bring it in to their uh, wildlife hospital, give it the medical care it needs, and get it back out to the wild world. So, you know, it started, it wasn't really planned. Um, I worked, uh, had a beautiful job at the Dartmouth Veterinary Hospital. It's a hospital manager there had the best bosses in the world. And the phone would ring and someone would say, hey, a bird just hit my window or a cat just brought home a squirrel. And those phone calls all got funneled over to me for some reason. And I was happy to handle them. So I started studying and learning what is the right thing to do in these cases. So before you knew it, um, there were wild animals being dropped off at Dartmouth Vet Hospital. And Mm. again, my bosses embraced it and helped them out. Turned out to be you know, 30 or 40 critters a year. And now we do over 7,000 animals every year. So it's grown just a little. And you, you mentioned earlier on the tour that you bring in at least 230 types of species. That is an astronomical amount and the, the knowledge and the space and everything you must need to have and know to treat that many different types of animals is, must be overwhelming at times. I know. And it's not just the medical care that's unique. And every species is just a little bit different in drug dosages and what kind of drugs that you can even use on them um, to the the medical care needed. But also the diet, the husbandry, the uh, enrichment, um, the holding units. There's so much that goes every step of the way in the rehabilitation process to have the the best possible results. So it's a lot of learning. Sometimes we get an animal in and we don't even know what it is. So we're yeah. hitting the books and looking it up and seeing what kind of species it is so that we know how to go forward with that species. What's the most rare species that you've had? We, yeah, you know, um, certain kinds of birds, but the ones that I find the most difficult to identify are sometimes the seabirds. And you wouldn't think that because I'm practically surrounded by the ocean. But um, some of them you never get to see because they live their whole lives out at sea and hardly ever come to shore unless there's huge winds. And so some of the seabirds are very rare. Uh, some maybe I've only seen one or two. Even the puffin, which is you know people think is more common, we've only ever rehabbed about four or five of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So it, it's neat when we get in something. It's sad, but it's interesting for us to see all the different species that come that come to us. And this year is unique. Um, we always keep very good data, and we compare you know what we got last year, what we got the year before, and 
this year we have the most species ever. So much more diversity, uh, diversity, and I'm not sure why that is this year, but we're mm. seeing a lot more species. When something comes in that is rare or new or something you haven't seen before, and I know you said you go to the, the books, is there information on how to treat all these out there somewhere? There is, yeah. you know, and when I first started, that wasn't the case. Yeah. You know, 25 years ago, it was a relatively new thing. And, you know, even trying to find um, information on, you know, what what the blood is made up of and what the blood reading should be, that that information wasn't readily available. It wasn't yeah. easy to find. Now it's easy to find um, that information on almost any species. And there is a lot more medical information out there. And it's nice because you build relationships and, and community. And we have uh, a veterinarian from the University of Guelph that studies uh, wildlife medicine, knows a lot. And she's, yeah. she's calling in and with us often. And we learn a great deal from her too. Did you feel as a child that this would be your calling or your life? I always, I was very quiet and shy growing up, and I still am to a certain degree. Um, but I always had this dream, and it wasn't to be a veterinarian or to to have, you know, to have a zoo. I just envisioned this really weird place where you were one with nature. So a really beautiful place. Just just picture the most pretty the prettiest place you've ever been. And but the animals were friendly, not scared of humans. And you just lived comfortably in this natural world. So as a small child I liked to daydream a lot. And that was one of my daydreams. And so I guess when you ask that question, did I plan this? No. Did I have any idea what it is I wanted? No. But somehow it found me or I found it, I'm not sure which, but I love my life. It's totally everything I do, I've worked towards. Um, it, it's what makes me happy every day. I'm always really enamored with people that have that almost uncanny sense of themselves, of knowing where they belong in the world. And I love how you've described this as I feel like this world has almost found you, like you you are truly meant to be doing this work and not everybody feels that way about the work that they do or has that real sense of self about them. Uh, and I imagine the the connection to to the animal must have been something as a child that was deep within you as well. I think it really was. And there's many stories I'm sure my mother could tell, but uh, I, you know, it was the it was the science of it too. I would spend hours scribbling notes, um, you know, about species. So I'd have this notebook and every time I saw something, I would research it and make notes about its behavior or its intelligence or what I saw it do that I found interesting as a child. So those kind of things, um, I think, helped it grow um, in a very simple way. It was just the desire to learn some people have the desire to learn about music. Some people have about sports. Some people have it about their natural world. And and that was mine. And you couldn't, my understanding at least, you couldn't go to school to study animal rehabilitation as you were developing this network here, this offering here. Were you just kind of, and maybe still, are just learning as you go and constantly absorbing new ways to bring this to life? 
I think every day we learn something new here at Hope for yeah. Wildlife. And it's been that way from the start. And I, I can't see it changing. It's such a new science when you stop and think about it. Um, we learn so much. We learn more each and every day. And sometimes we look back at how we did things at the very beginning. And we think, oh, gosh, that wasn't that wasn't proper. But we were the pioneers. We were the old folks that you know, got to learn through trial and error, sadly, but that's how you get better at mm -hmm. things. So, you know, sometimes the way you do things opens up the door to do it better. And that's really what we're all about. Did you grow up in Nova Scotia? I sure did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where at? I grew up in a little place called Argyle. Um, okay. So, so between two French communities, St. Andrew Rousseau and Pupnico. Okay. And yeah. uh, I love my life. It's right on the ocean. Looks yeah. a little bit like Seaforth. When yeah. my friends come to visit, they say, oh, we see why you picked this place. It's a little <laughs> yeah. bit like home. <laughs> yeah. And obviously animals were a big thing when, when you were young. Was, was there a lot of wildlife in the area there in Argyle? Uh, there was, and, you know, it was a fishing community. So yeah. the way we looked at our natural world was so different. I mean, I grew up where we planted a garden for our food. Dad went hunting for our food. Yeah. Um, so it was needed. We weren't, you know, rich. Uh, we were average. We were like the rest of the community that we grew up in. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes money was tight. And to be able to hunt your own food for the family was something my father did. And I think that's good because it, it taught me a respect um, for nature. And people are often surprised to hear that, but yeah. it's how I grew up and we yeah. lived from the land. Yeah, I think having that upbringing really shapes. I, I grew up in uh, the Annapolis Valley in a very rural community. We, I just called a road more than anything, but my father hunted as well and had his little camp back in the woods that you'd have to really put effort into getting to. And we actually, our neighbors were cattle farmers and we would trade uh, our our land in the backyard for their pregnant cattle to live in in exchange for their spring water because our spring would go dry every year. And telling that story now feels like, you know, oh my gosh, how did you possibly grow up this way? Like losing water every summer. And, but I feel like it's shaped me in so many ways and really appreciate now having that rural upbringing. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially like the animals were my friends. I remember like there's photos of me kind of down on all fours, hanging out with the cows and wanting them to really feel connected to me as much as I was to them. And we'd talk and hang out and I'd interview them. <laughs> like mm -hmm. maybe that was my destiny now that I'm doing that now. But how do you see that that real connection, I guess, with the animal kingdom and, and how different are they from human beings? I've always said and always believed um, that wild animals are, are incredibly intelligent. And I always laugh just a little bit when people say, oh, crows are so intelligent, don't you know? They've done all this research and they've proven that they have very good brains. Because to me, if you study any part of nature, um, any species, you will find the same thing. Incredible intelligence, empathy, caring, love between uh, the family unit. You'll see so many things that you can learn from. It really is quite amazing what, what you can take back from watching nature. And so I do think it's important for all of us to slow down enough and to take that time to just hang out in a natural setting. Um, there's always places, even if you're in the city, there's beautiful parks and areas that you can 
just go take that half hour, that 15 minutes, and just enjoy the peace and quiet and beauty of our natural world and think how lucky we are. I think one of the biggest lessons I learned growing up is um, I had the pleasure of meeting um, my brother married a lady from Russia, which at the time was under communist rule. Um, and she had to leave because she broke a very serious rule by marrying a Canadian. Mm. And when I get to meet her and talk to her and learn about life in Russia and growing up and what it was like and how you had to stand in lines for your foods and she didn't mince her, she didn't beat around the bush when she had a point to make. She used to say, you are so spoiled. And I never thought of myself as spoiled. Um, you know, you have this beautiful home, you have clothes, you have food, you have everything, you have this beauty around you. And I think at a very young age, when it was really important to hear those things, I got to realize that material stuff was so irrelevant. It did not matter one little bit. It was all about family and people around you and the yeah. very basic needs. Beautiful. Do you feel like now, this day and age, 2023, uh, everyone's got a phone. We're all on computers all the time. Do you think people are forgetting a little bit about that beauty of nature and how it can kind of ground us and just the healing properties of it? Absolutely. I, you know, I've done a lot of research on children and, and how it affects, you know, their learning. And of course, there's papers, many, many papers, but the one that really stuck with me is young people that are connected to electronics for a certain amount of hours a day uh, lose the ability to daydream. Mm. Mm. And when I think of my growing up, I spent an awful lot of time daydreaming. I really yeah. did. And to not have that, some of my best ideas at, were at a very young age. And, yeah. you know, to have missed all that daydreaming and that thought, I think you know, shapes you into a totally different person. Maybe one that can't problem solve quite as much. Maybe yeah. one that doesn't develop passions quite as much or care quite as much. And they did a research project here. A group of students came out from Dalhousie and they interviewed children before they had a tour of Hope for Wildlife. And then right after they had, they spent a week here at kids camp. And then they followed up with those children again in about three to four months to see if just that small interaction in their life made a difference. So I remember the day very well when they called and said, okay, we have the results. Can we come yeah. out and present them to you? And of course, we're all saying, of course it will make a difference. And we were like secretly really worried. What if it doesn't, you know? Yeah. So they came out and they presented and sure enough, it made a huge difference. Yeah. And how, how much more attention they paid uh, to their natural world. But they said, we found something else that we weren't expecting to find and where they were really, really surprised. They found that the children were more caring to each other too. Mm. And they weren't expecting to find that result. And they went ahead and tried to get that paper published. And I'm not sure if they ever did, but I thought it was so interesting that it makes us better in so many ways. And you've had everything from that age group to seniors like you're 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 actually physically taking hope for wildlife to seniors facilities correct we love those days <laughs> very receptive audience they love every minute of it they all have stories to tell about when they were young and how they <laughs> met a skunk once or they had an interaction with a raccoon or you know just so many beautiful stories that that should be preserved forever and are you taking the same animals each time are there kind of a cast a cast list that you call upon <laughs> what we do is if the same senior home asks for us to come in a second or third time we we try and 
change it up a little bit so that they get to see a variety of of our education crew and learn different stories that we can share with them. How important is education for a visitor when they come here? I mean, for people that know us, we have three important goals. And education I always start with because it's what's going to make the most difference. All the goals are equally important, but education is what's going to make the most change. And I honestly believe that. And so we spend as much time as we can educating the public on why we get these injured wild animals in. And they're all human caused, you know, 99.9% of them, Mm. and what they can do to prevent them. And really, if we do a really, really good job in educating, our number of patients should drop, um, you know, in a perfect world, if, if people out there didn't trap and remove you know, they used other methods to to live with with nature. So that's our goal: work ourselves out of a rehab job. <laughs> and and one of or your main philosophy, I guess, partially is that you treat every animal. A lot of people question me on that, yeah. and they say, "Well, you only have so much money, and money is very difficult to find." Yeah. Um. So, but I would never change on that. My whole message is about how everything's connected. We need it all. Everything's equally important. We can't just pick and choose what parts of nature's important and what parts Mm -hmm. aren't. That perhaps if we paid attention to the ecosystem as a whole, we wouldn't have as many endangered species. Once it gets to that critical point, it's almost too late. Like we need to be thinking of the entire ecosystem. And so it doesn't matter what someone brings to my door. We are going to rehabilitate it to our best ability and get it back out to the wild if we can. And we hope that children especially kind of get that message that, hey, it's okay to care about the things that are plentiful. They're every bit as important to our ecosystem as anything else. I was really surprised at the statistic of more than 99% of the animals that find themselves here are a result of human nature, human you know, our impact and what kinds, is there something that maybe you're seeing more often than not that we can be thinking about as, you know, interviewing you here today or our listeners that are so common that we might be able to just fix easily. Stop doing that. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. I mean, the number one reason we see animals in is hit by cars. So I know Mm -hmm. there's many times that they cannot be avoided, but certainly by being more observant at dawn and dusk, slowing down around dawn and dusk, uh, keeping a really close eye on the sides of the road. If you see one deer, there's probably more. You know, just some very basic things. Honk if you have to. Do whatever you can to avoid for your own safety um, and the animal safety, these collisions. Lobby our government to put more corridors across our highways or uh, tunnels under our highways. We need them desperately. Um, so many lives would be saved, uh, both human and wild, if, if those steps were taken. I think it's incredibly important as our populations grow. Um, we do see a lot of uh, animals come in because of our domestic pets. Um, So keep control of your cats and dogs. Dogs bring in many small uh, critters in their mouths, uh, just delivering to mom and dad, I guess. But Mm -hmm. so they often become orphaned that way. And cats, as we know, can be can be very harmful to the bird population and also the smaller the smaller animal population. So give them a life outside in a catio or some beautiful way that they can still enjoy sunshine and fresh air. 
and but keep them safe from predators too and uh, try and find a way to live more comfortably with nature. The other thing we see a lot of, um, we get over 900 baby raccoons a year, and most mm. of them could be prevented because people will trap out the mothers, not realizing there's babies. Well, there's usually always babies from the spring right through to early fall in Nova Scotia. Yeah. So don't trap out and remove. Use other methods. If there's a raccoon in your attic, um, they pick that attic because it's dark and quiet. So put some bright lights up there, play a radio, mm. do whatever you can and to make it uncomfortable for mom. And she will move her babies maybe two or three a night, may take a week, uh, but she will tend to move those babies along. And you've solved your problem in a very humane method. And you had mentioned on the tour uh, a very simple thing to uh, prevent raccoons from your going in your compost bin is uh, some type of, I guess, elastic band or types of hooks to, to keep it shut so they can't crawl in. Because we've had a couple babies in our compost bin last year. and They're very cute to see, but it was a hot day and like, Luckily, we happen to, to see them in there because, uh, yeah, that could be catastrophic. It really can. It, it's really a horrible death. They get in there and it's they're eating fermented food and they can get sick just from that. But the yeah. heat, you know, many, mm. many animals die inside those green bins. So yeah. we have a little exhibit done up here at Hope for Wildlife and we actually give away free bungees. They're oh. heavy-duty ones yeah. and they should keep a raccoon out. Um, but just, just doing that one little thing can save a save a lot um we even see galls that get in them we see a lot of different critters not yeah. just raccoons that get mm. inside these bins and as the summer uh, progresses it's going to get hotter and hotter so we got to yeah. be really careful about that you talked about having a 100 percent success rate and now having been here i completely understand what you mean but would like for you to give a little bit of explanation of what you mean by that People often ask how successful we are in rehabilitation. And and I do say that. I say, oh, we're 100% successful. And that means that um, it is our job to make those hard decisions on euthanasia. And that's probably the hardest part of our job. Um, let it be said that we try our very best on every single patient. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter what it might be how long it would take. Uh, but if it's fixable, we will try. Um, but however, there's cases where we know that animal can never go back to the wild and we have to make, and it's suffering. And it's our job to do a humane euthanasia right then and there. So, you know, when you look at it from that point of view, we're here to, to stop the suffering of the animals if need be. We're here to fix them if we can. We're here to do our the very best. So when people ask me, I say, you know, they'll say, what's going to happen? And when they're dropping an animal off, because they're invested, they care. And I say, you know what, we're going to do the very best we can. And that's an honest answer. And if that very best is euthanasia, then that's what we might have to do. But we try not to. Is there, maybe this is impossible to tell, but is there an average cost per animal that comes in? <laughs> I, you know, it's so funny because I, I used to sit down and try and figure that out. Yeah. And it's, it's like, oh my gosh, if people only knew, we probably spend $150,000 a year just in food alone. Yeah. Like we have to buy special foods like mice and rats and chicks. And, you know, they're most, a lot of our patients are carnivores. So they need that full meal. Yeah. So we have to give good quality foods. 
So in the milk powders alone, we could spend $10,000 just on an or- a shipment of milk powders coming in because yeah. all the babies need a special formula in order to survive and to grow up. So it's incredibly expensive, yeah. uh, just food alone. And then you, you've got your power bills to pay and you've got your maintenance and repairs and you've got your enrichment that's going to cost money. You've got your medical care to pay for. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that go into running a wildlife rehab a lot of people ask me what it costs per year and we do it as cheaply as we can, but it's still pushing at about 6,000 animals a year. It still costs about one and a half million dollars a year to run this, this facility properly. And this is a massive facility. Like there's, we'd be at the tour and we didn't even see the whole thing. And there's dozens of buildings. There's dozens of staff all around. You have vets and doctors on site. Like, and 24 hours. 24 hours, yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, to build this to what it is today must have been a, a massive process. And so many good people out there. Thank you, everybody. It's, yeah. You know, it really is a community, a team, yeah. uh, a group of like-minded people, generous businesses that sometimes donate. Individuals, when they drop off a bird, yeah. they might leave $10. That all adds up. And, yeah. you know, it's the kindness of community. It's the kindness yeah. of Nova Scotians. And people from BC and Ontario help out. People from all over Canada help yeah. out. And so it's it's really heartwarming. People do care. People, people really want to see a difference in the way we treat our natural world. Are there facilities like this elsewhere in Canada and around the world? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know... It's funny because when we started doing the TV show, a lot of people contacted me and said, hey, once I saw your show, I Googled wildlife rehab and I put the name of my city next to it. And guess what? We have one just like you just down the road and I never knew. Yeah. And I'm volunteering there now. So it, it, they're everywhere. They really are. And you just need to look for them. And they're there to help. They're there to to do the best they can do. Most operate on shoestring budgets. It's really, really hard to make ends meet. Um, so I know everybody out there that runs a rehab does the very best they can do and uh, with, the, with what they have to work with. Do you tag an animal every time it's released back into the wildlife? We tag some. Um, all of our raccoons have a microchip in them. And we do that more to help during their care to make sure they get their vaccines on time to make sure they get their deworming appropriately to make sure we can return them back to where they came from um, we tag all our white-tailed deer um, so many species are monitored but like some of the smaller ones uh, we don't have the the money or the ability to tag them in a safe way you showed us some of your high-tech equipment for staying safe as a staff member here. Has there ever been, a, have you ever experienced a serious injury or something where you thought, we better buy those suits so this doesn't happen again? <laughs> we, uh, we've had a few accidents, but when I think back, most of the more serious accidents of broken bones were because people slip and fall. Yeah. You know, I live on a hill and think of winter and ice and all of that. So, um, you know, everybody gets a bite. I always, when people come to me with their first bite wound, I always say, okay, you're an official rehabber now. Initiation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What animals are the, the worst biters? I, for me, it, it, the seals. Uh, seals some yeah. of my worst scars are from oh. seals. Yeah. But raccoons can do quite 
quite serious damage if you're not really careful, especially in February, March, when hormones are kicking in and yeah. that kind of thing. You got to be incredibly. Mm. I think the only time I was sent to the hospital was a raccoon attack. Actually, really? yeah. Huh. You mentioned that this time of year is quite busy for animals coming in. What is it like? What are your peak and valley seasons, and what is it about those seasons that makes it so? It used to be winter was more relaxing, but, <laughs> but now we're busy year round. And thank heavens that certain species are plentiful through the, like in the winter we get over a hundred owls and that kind of thing. And, or, and, and our gray seals and that kind of thing in the summer, it's all babies. So definitely mm. the most busy starting May right through to August, sometime into September, depending on our, on our weather. Um, and if, you know, it's because of the conflicts, um, you know, there's a lot more babies out there. There's a lot more wild animals out there. They're moving around more, so there's more hit by cars. So in the winter, things slow down. Animals are quieter. We see we see less, and there's very few babies out there. So it it is a calmer time of year. So we get all our volunteers and interns that, that come in May, June, July, and August, and we couldn't do it without them. We really yeah. couldn't. Well, we saw on the wall, uh, you had pictures of all the volunteers and there's, <laughs> I don't know how many, but there's a lot. There's a lot, yeah. probably close to two, 200, 250 people. We try and get in about 25 interns every year. We get, um, you know, we have dispatch team where they go out and gather the injured animals as they're called in. Uh, we have tr two, three triage centers set up now where, you know, if an animal has to drive, five hours for medical care it could die in that process so yeah. now mm. we have them strategically placed so that emergency care can be given right away and we're seeing a much better success rate because of that the animal can get warmed up it can get hydrated it can, can be given pain meds and uh and then brought to us once it's stable so that's working out really well for us too i want to ask you mike okay because we're first-time visitors here, and this is an experience that you can come as a member of the public on Saturdays to view the location and ask some questions, learn about things. Can you talk about how you feel and what your experience was like today for anyone who may have never been here before and a first-time visitor? Just talk about that. It's. I feel like I'm a little kid again. Yeah, like, <laughs> me too. Like when we, the first spot we saw was uh, the education center. Is that what you call it? Mm -hmm. And you had a number of, uh, of animals in there that um, aren't able to be released back into the wild, and just just learning about them all. And there was the snake there that you said ended up um someone went to the gym and when they picked up their bag to leave there was the, that snake was in it <laughs> which i that would be the craziest thing imaginable but uh all the little stories you find out about how this animal got here and how this one's from australia and someone found it on the side of the road like and it just yeah reminds me of just the excitement of being a kid and learning all these little things again and then seeing all the hard work that goes into this is really inspiring and there's also uh, an element of uh, compassion that you feel towards all the animals you just want to do what you can to, to help and i understand how those kids who come here are uh, changed in, in in a positive way because you you see all these really passionate people just putting their hearts into what they're they're doing here and it inspires you to to want to do the same 
So, uh, yeah. So excitement, <laughs> inspiration, uh, compassion would be probably the, the three big things. And just seeing the animals is exciting. Like we we were three feet away from a bald eagle named Buddy. We uh, <laughs> we saw an owl, a blind owl. That was a little creepy, I won't lie. Like I'm like, if that was in a horror movie, it would fit perfectly. <laughs> But in the context there, it's really cute and beautiful. Um, yeah, it's just uh, just a, an amazing place. And how, how how big is it here? Like, how many acres are you on? We started with about 12 acres. Yeah. And then I was able to buy a few pieces of land to join up. Yeah. So we probably have close to 20 now. Yeah. Hopefully it will last us and be big enough to, to do everything we need it to do. Where are you receiving the majority of your operations funding to make this even happen day to day? Yeah, um, it's a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. and I kind of like it that way. Yeah. I hate mm-hmm. having all my eggs in one basket. So we do like fundraisers. That's one area. Like we have a big open house every year, yeah. and then we do calendar sales and those gift shop sales, and that's another area. We do um, monthly donors. Um, to be quite honest, when someone puts us in their will. It's a huge, mm. huge part of what keeps us yeah. going. So if anybody's doing up their will, think of a charity yeah. that they care about and, and do leave a little something. It doesn't need to be much, but it really helps. And it's such a, such a I don't know how to put it. It's such a nice surprise, even though it's such a sad event. Like yeah. it, it's, it's, it makes me want to do the same thing, you know, and put, put charities in my will when it happens to us. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really beautiful way of looking at full circle of life as well. And that connection to the natural world and a way to give back. We don't maybe think that financial donations are the, the most exciting way of contributing, but it's really what has made so much of this operation possible. I mean, the costs of the medical care alone would be just enormous. So it's yeah. Anything that people can do. I wanted to ask, I was really fascinated by, especially when we were uh, viewing the ICU and some of the more veterinarian trained skill set, but you are so knowledgeable about all of this. So, I I mean, you're learning every day, you're so hands-on, but is all of that just accumulation of years of experience that you're able to speak to Mike and I about blood work as though you've been doing that part Mm. of the job alone for years? I think growing up through it. And I, I kind of have a joke. I, I think I've forgotten more than I know that I remember. Like sometimes I go back to old, old notes and old ways of doing things. Oh, I forgot about that. Yes. That's a good trick. Mm. You know? So yeah. it is just, you're, you know, it's been 25 years or more since the nineties and really the early nineties um, that I've been doing this. So it's a long time and yeah. And I feel comfortable with it. You know, I mm. think, I think that's the key. I just, it's just so much a part of me and, and I love knowledge and, and I'm always searching out new information and and new data. How much has your own intuition and natural instincts developed from being around such instinctual creatures all the time? Hopefully quite a bit. And I do like, sometimes I'll second guess myself and then I'll go back to my mission statement and that helps me answer any question I have. And it's really, my mission is to connect people to their natural world again. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm having a tough time, you know, do I, do I go with what I think or do, you know, I 
go back to my mission. It really helps me answer those questions. It sounds kind of odd in this day and age that, that a mission statement could be so important, but it has been for me. It's your, your North Star. <laughs> it is, you know? yeah. Your, your guiding light. Yeah. I want to ask some uh, specific animal questions here, uh, if that's okay. <laughs> is this a trivia round? No, 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 not trivia, just curiosity <laughs> round. Um, what's the biggest animal you've ever had come in? Uh, we've had some big ones, like some grown deer, yeah. uh, but we've had a we had a huge, very heavy harp seal uh, adult, yeah. and it was like uh, we were worried that it would break our X-ray table, but it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so that was it. You know, took like six of us to carry it in and and how would someone get the seal here <laughs> you know we have the most amazing rescuers out there and they get yeah. so little thanks and so little credit but they're out there every day figuring out ways to 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 get these animals in safely yeah. to us and and i used to do my share of rescues when i was younger but they're they're pretty exciting yeah mm-hmm. um okay let's go the opposite way what would the smallest animal be a mouse or something probably yeah <laughs> probably the little mice the little shrews uh all creatures great and small uh, some of the little baby birds that have just hatched yeah, out of the egg yeah. and they're really hard to rehab but we do our very best with them and i think you guys saw some little chickadees today yeah, and yeah. they're they're almost full grown now and they were just just out of the egg and uh so yeah, the little tiny birds would probably be it. And uh, one last one, animal related, but not necessarily here. Do you have any pets? <laughs> I used to have thousands, a cat, but, <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I used to. But it's hard in this world yeah. because I end up with the odd critter that I have to care for overnight because it's on emergency feed or that kind of thing. So keeping keeping my space. Uh, ready for that is important mm. to me and I love it like the, the heavier we get into this the more management and people aspects there are to running a wildlife rehab center so I do sometimes miss out on day-to-day hands-on although I still do a lot of it I still yeah. feed the white-tailed deer every year and do those kind of things yeah. mm. um, but so I do welcome the opportunities to do that kind of thing yeah mm-hmm. do you ever have the chance to leave and like, do you feel like that's something you need just to separate every once in a while and maybe give your mind a break, maybe go on vacation? I don't know what that <laughs> energizing might look like for you, but this is a, yeah, there'd be so many details to keep track of all the time that where do you find sort of just a mental break? I think it's really important to take a break and we create our own world. And sometime I might complain, oh, I wish I had a day off or something like that. Well, I guess what? I'm in control. Take a day off. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's important. And sometimes in the summer, I won't because it's so busy. But, I, you know, in the fall, winter and spring, I'll get my little bits of time away and I might travel. I might go see family. I might just take a day at the camp, you know, yeah. just just to, to chill and enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Do you still get the same feeling of when you help an animal that you did at the start? It's crazy, but I honestly do. When that first baby comes in and when the first fawns start to arrive, I get every bit as excited as I did from the very beginning. And I'm so glad that that's never left. That part is still as beautiful and wonderful as it was from the very beginning. And I knew that was going to be the answer because <laughs> we're all smiling. It's, like, it's very wink, wink. <laughs> just meeting you for 10 seconds. It's pretty apparent just the, the love that you have for every single animal and creature living 
living being in in here and it's uh it's yeah it's inspiring for sure yeah we're just i i feel the same way as you coming here just driving in the car feeling like i was going to an amusement park <laughs> and you know we claim to be animal lovers i mean for the most part everyone can can recognize that connection and love um but i think now what really caught me too was like seeing a seeing a baby beaver or seeing something up close and personal like that we almost are complacent to it in our day-to-day lives like we see so much volume of say a squirrel or a skunk and some of them have a bad rap and so you don't think about it in that real personal how they're connected to us way so that was a big takeaway for me today was just i can really appreciate how coming here and having that relationship you would take that with you uh, I wanted to ask about naming the animals and d- does any, every animal get a name or how do they deserve their name? <laughs> I, and I, I really like what you just said. I wished every person could experience a moment in time with a living creature up close and personal. Mm-hmm. I really do. There's nothing wrong with it. I think people need to experience that to appreciate it to the fullest. And, you know, sometimes people criticize us because we name them. Well, number one, we name them because it's fun and we, yeah. need, we need a little fun in our life. Um, mm. We're not trying to humanize them. It's just much easier to say buddy than number 362. Yeah. Humans communicate through names. So we see no harm in naming them. And no, obviously we can't name them all, but ones that stick out in our mind, it's just they'll do something and then they'll end up with a nickname. I know when I do the white-tailed deer, I have nicknames for almost every single white-tailed deer and I can tell them all apart. And, you know, they might be something is, you know, really silly like like a floppy ear or white foot or, you know, something that I'll look at that animal and know immediately which one it is. But it is fun. And, um, you know, we pick different themes. Uh for for some of our critters names like the deer this year i think are disney characters so it's like <laughs> that's so fun it, it is fun. Just even stay organized i imagine it does we do that with our backyard animals too they yeah. all have names yeah like we're up to several probably oh, 15 or 20 there's, there's just lots, yeah right. they're not all there anymore but they do all get names as well yeah. it's I, fun it's fun yeah i have uh, another question a fun one um what animals, in your opinion, have the cutest babies? Oh. <laughs> oh, they're, all, they're all beautiful. <laughs> and you know, it's so funny because you can look at a little tiny baby turtle and think, oh my God, that's the cutest little thing I ever yeah. saw. I think, I think the baby otters, the baby... Um, so many. <laughs> I, think, I love uh, the, the minks, the weasels. I love all yeah. of them. The baby skunks are incredibly beautiful. The Porcupines raccoons are porcup- really cute. We have a lot of them down there right now. <laughs> yeah. Kristen, do you have a favorite? The baby beavers I saw today. I, so I was out jogging one day on the rails to trails. We live out St. Margaret's Bay Road area. So we've got that great access and saw a baby beaver for the first time on one of my jogs one day. And yeah, it just stopped me in my tracks and I sat and watched it until he disappeared. Like there, I definitely wasn't going to be the one to leave first. But like I was saying, like having them that close, uh, being able to see the details in their faces and it's so much different than just driving by and from the window of your car. Yeah. We've We've all seen lots of wildlife, but I think it was that closeness to them today that really 
yeah, like you, you feel them, you feel their energy and you can look into their eyes. And I imagine with you, Hope, you can even feel suffering and like this whole range of emotion. So this is just a, an hour for us having experienced that in a lifetime for you. So it would, yeah, really just, it's in your body, how you connect yeah. with them. It's, you know, wild animals are really stoic and they don't show their fear or their pain, but the more time you spend with them, you can read them to a degree. Mm-hmm. Certain species are easier than others, but yeah, you can tell if they're stressed or unhappy or happy. You know, you can you can tell. Mm-hmm. This has been just the the most amazing experience. Um, what what should people take away from just hope for wildlife in general? I know you mentioned, I guess, just getting that reestablishing that connection to nature. And is that, is that the biggest thing you try to give to your, to people who come here or read about it or see your show? I think recognizing the connection that we need and also doing something about it. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I think we've come a little, we've become a little complacent, you know, someone else will do that or, you know, I'll get calls on injured wildlife and I'll say, well, could you get it in a little box and bring it to us? And, you know, some people say, oh, no, that's your job or can no, I don't have time or but making that time and that little yeah. bit of effort that it might take to save an injured wild animal, getting them to a wildlife rehab center right away is critically important. So and plus it's an experience of a lifetime. Yeah. You know, so I think, you know, try and make that little bit of extra effort. It's OK. I think. We've been sort of brainwashed to a degree. No, don't get involved in nature. Let nature be. But I don't agree with that. I think we do need to get involved in nature because we've caused all these problems. Yeah. So get involved in a good way and get them in to get the medical care they need. Because a rehab center is nothing more than a big hospital. It's all medicine, except we have no owners or no parents to give the animals back to. Yeah. So we have to do that final stage recovery before we set them free. Beautiful. You, yeah, you're you're an incredibly busy person, Hope, and you you give so much of your own energy. And it's it's just such a privilege to sit down with you today and so thankful for you to give us just so much of your time knowing you've probably got a lineup at the gates of people waiting to speak with you and emails that are endless and we just appreciate this. I, I know this is a day that neither one of us will ever forget. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So nice to meet you both. Oh, it's a means so much to us. And where where can people find Hope for Wildlife on the on the web? Yes, it's just uh, hopeforwildlife.net. And uh, yeah, there's all kinds of wonderful information there. And we have a great Facebook page too. Okay, Facebook. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Perfect. We'll throw those links up and uh, yeah, invite everyone to come visit on a Saturday for one of the open tours. And like Hope said, just contribute, do your part, be participate. And uh, there's lots of ways that you can support this amazing rehab center out here. And the Saturdays is going to be 12 to 3. 12 to 3. And through the summer, we're going to try and open uh, Wednesdays from 12 to 3 also. Okay, great. Good. Very good. We'll be back. People are going to love hearing this episode, Hope. So, yeah, uh, yeah. thanks a million and uh, much love and all the best ahead. Same to you, Bob. Cheers. Cheers. That was pretty cool, eh? Was it ever? We'll be kind of buzzed up for a while from that one. It's kind of funny. We're downstairs in the lunchroom chatting, and above there is the ICU for the animals. 
So uh, I haven't listened back to the conversation, but uh, I'm curious to see because we could hear just some, some movement up there and stuff like they're performing. I don't know if they do surgery up there, but uh, they they they're move they're taking care of a lot of animals right above us, which is pretty cool. Yeah, animals would come in and they're sort of triaged according to the urgency. Uh, if it's an animal that just needs maybe housing or all the way up to ICU treatment, so yeah, uh, or, or immediate treatment, I should say. So we got to see a lot of the landscape. We'll definitely go back for a visit. We didn't get to see every animal. Yeah. But seeing a little seal up like that is pretty cool. The bee, baby beavers. Um, yeah, and and Hope herself gave us the tour. Like it, usually, I think when you go there, you're probably just one of the volunteers or someone showing you around. But we had we had the VIP treatment for sure. This is an organization we absolutely encourage you to support, fundraise for. Now, having been there, and I I just really need to give credit to a single person taking this on. And of course, she has this team that enables this to keep operating, but she's the heartbeat of this and any way that we can celebrate and support somebody that's doing that kind of work, we want to. But yeah, this is a great episode, and we got a lot of exciting summer stuff coming up. You can find us on the web, mikeandkristen.ca, and yeah, both of uh, all all our stuff is linked in the uh, show notes, as is the Hope for Wildlife information. Thanks for listening, friends. Uh, Get your water wings out for the. If you're in Nova Scotia, chances are that uh, it's raining today. Where we're at, where uh, my parents are in Cape Breton, they have a water shortage, which is crazy. It's one or the other, huh? Yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, it's been raining for, I think, eight days straight here. It's uh, a little depressing, but you know, we're still kicking. We're being productive. Yeah. Trying to take advantage. Getting lots done. Summer heat. Let's put the wish out there. Let's do a collective wish for a sunny day. Woo. Okay, friends. Thanks for listening. Uh, we love all your support. It means a lot to us. And we'll see you back here soon. Cheers.